what happens when we start to isolate, not just our families start to isolate, but then we start to isolate from our families, our nuclear family in our own household. And this has only happened in the last few decades, by the way, there's been this fracturing because our devices have divided us in many ways. And by the way, I'm not here. We're doing this on a device right now. So there is benefit to be found in it and connection, but we've got to understand that we require real world interaction. And this is one of the most important opportunities that we have to see our children because a lot of communication is nonverbal, you know, to be able to pick up body language and subtleties and being able to catch things early because a lot of things that manifest aren't just sudden when we see an outcome, maybe maybe it's a behavior of some sort or, you know, some kind of trauma that eventually manifests, but being able to pay attention to catch things early, having that opportunity to eat together is an opportunity to, to connect. Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. Hey everyone, Dr. Anna here, and I am recording this Girlfriend Doctor show from my kitchen for, well, one reason is I love my kitchen. The second reason is I love food. You know, I'm such a foodie and I love bringing people together around a table of good food with Thanksgiving around the corner and planning Thanksgiving dinner and all kinds of good meals and festivities and bringing people together always thinking of food is medicine, right? Food is the first medicine. And Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And it's so true because the ancient physicians were prepared the food for the kings. They worked with food as medicine for their body constitution. We hear so much about different foods, ingredients, vitamins that can play a role in optimizing our health and longevity. But the most important thing, like I always think about this, is it that red glass of red wine that you're drinking at the table? A lot of controversy about alcohol now, but is it that glass of red wine with the resveratrol in that is improving your longevity? Or is it the people around your table that are coming together, that are pitching in, that are participating in this community and you know they have your back you're able to share and enjoy each other and laugh some of the best medicine <laughs> happens around the table so today on my show i have a really special guest someone who i admire his work and his research and how he is a medical investigator really and just a lifestyle hacker in this whole world of biohacking. He is amazing. He is the founder and host of the Model Health Show and a good friend. I want to invite you all to meet Sean Stevenson. Welcome, Sean. Oh, it's so good to see you again. I'm excited so, to be here. 
So good to see you too. And so the surprise for Sean today is that I am in my kitchen. I have his book open. I've earmarked some of my favorite recipes already in it. Then I was like marking everything. So I had to stop that. And I'm cooking for dinner tonight, Boss Burgers, no bun with lettuce and a side of zucchini. So I'm excited about that. This is an amazing book, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. And I want you to share with our audience about that. And I'm going to give the, because you talk about family eating and you know, I love it when my daughters are helping in the kitchen. So I've been seasoning up this meat. Amira has been chopping up some onions and I'm going to have her mix everything together, and make some good burger patties. This is so awesome. I had no idea that you would be doing this. And so hanging out with you in the kitchen right now, like this is a perfect compliment. This is awesome. And so, you know, as you just mentioned, and first of all, we're not taking wine away, by the way. <laughs> But we're adding a dimension to it, which is that social part. And that's the part, unfortunately, it's really been left out of science, nutritional science. And so the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook is really this intersection with social science and nutritional science. And of course, in a fun way and empowering and entertaining all the things, but also rich in the latest science. There's over 250 scientific references in a cookbook, which has never been done before. But in the way that I have been, you know, really practicing for the past 20 plus years working in this field to be able to convey these things in an interesting way and really make this topic sexy. And that's really <laughs> the goal. And so, you know, I was really shocked to find out just how much eating together with people that we care about impacts our health outcomes. And I happened upon a study, first and foremost, researchers at Harvard were collecting data on social eating and family interactions around the table and nutrient intake for years. And I was, I couldn't believe people didn't know about this. And so one of the things they uncovered was that families that eat together on a regular basis consume significantly higher amounts of real whole foods, namely fruits and vegetables, and significantly less ultra processed foods, namely chips and soda. And the researchers identified it was outrageous how much higher intake of vital nutrients people were taking in when they're eating with their families. So, you know, things like calcium, magnesium, uh, folate, uh, fiber, the list goes on and on, and significantly less trans fats. And so that was one study. And I'll share two more really quickly. And this is really where I was just like, because when I heard this, I'm like, okay, so is there a certain amount? Like, how often should we be doing this? And I, I kept, came upon two studies. One was published in Pediatrics and the other was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they found that eating together with your family, it, it's apparently three meals a week is at minimum effective dose to sig see significant reduction in obesity in children, as well as significantly reduced incidence of disordered eating in children when they're able to eat with their families three or more times a week. And so it's really exciting to be able to be a vessel for this information to get out. And of course, I can't wait to dive in and talk about why, because a lot of these whys tie in so great with your work. And yeah, I'm just really excited about this. Well, when I saw your title, like Eat Smarter Family Cookbook and started digging into it and just knowing you and your personality and your love for family and health and community, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a oxytocin producing book. Like they are producing oxytocin every step of the way in this and, and the concepts around it. And that is, that is the most powerful hormone in our body. So, and also making it easy and fun because cooking can be so intimidating 
for for many of us and you think of oh my gosh well i love cooking i don't like cleaning the dishes <laughs> and the the stove and all that good stuff so making it fun easy simple is important too you just said the magic word the big o word oxytocin yes. that's one of the big o words and this is one of the whys behind why is this affecting our health outcomes and by the way let me throw in one other study for adults we were just looking at outcomes with the children but one of the studies that I cited in the book was looking at office workers at IBM and looking at their stress outcomes, their job satisfaction, and how it tied into their family interactions and being able to make it home for dinner. And they found that when workers were able, regardless of their work stress, to make it home for family dinner, they their work morale stayed high, work productivity stayed high, and their stress level stayed low. But as soon as work obligations started, started to cut into that family time and being able to, quote, make it home for dinner, suddenly plummeting in their job satisfaction, in their work output, and excessively high levels of stress started to take on, even looking at biomarkers, you know, obviously things like C-reactive protein. And what this is, and by the way, why does that matter? I, I cited one other study uh, regarding stress, well, several other ones, but the big one was published in JAMA. And they found that upwards of 80% of all physician visits are for stress-related illnesses today. So as you, and you know this, stress is a big underlying component of so many of these outcomes. And we blame it on all these things and not understanding like these things inherently are stressors. And so oxytocin is one of the compounds that has been found to essentially counteract the activity of things like cortisol. And we do oxytocin really well, especially women do oxytocin really well when in proximity with people that they care about. Mm -hmm. And all of us do that. It's just one of those things that just gets turned up a few notches when we're around people that we love. Really for me, the dinner table is a unifier and it's an opportunity to connect. And this behavior is something we evolved doing. We evolved in tribes. That's how we made it this far as a species. You know, there were other versions potential of what we could have been. If you wanna destroy a society, isolate them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We we require our genes expect us to connect. We are required to connect. Even the most introverted among us, we need connection. We need love. We need affection. Or we develop what we label as diseases. And a lot of times, what we label as diseases are adaptations. Right. Our bodies finding a way to operate and keep us alive under unideal circumstances. And so having this opportunity to understand, like we evolved eating together, everybody was involved in this process of eating, the hunting, the gathering, the food preparation, eating together as a tribe, sharing in what we all harvested and the celebration. You know, we might see a dramatized version of that in something like a luau. My family and I just got back from Hawaii for the first time and seeing, I was watching this and I'm knowing that this book is coming soon. I'm just like, this This is what it really is. And now it's just like something people watch as entertainment, but that's how we evolved. And so what happens, and this is the thing, what happens when we start to isolate, not just our families start to isolate, but then we start to isolate from our families, our nuclear family in our own household. And this has only happened in the last few decades, by the way, there's been this fracturing because our devices have divided us. We're doing this on a device right now. So there is benefit to be found in it and connection, but we've got to understand that we require real world interaction. And this is one of the most important opportunities that we have to see our children because a lot of communication is nonverbal, you know, to be able to pick up 
body language and subtleties and being able to catch things early because a lot of things that manifest aren't just sudden. You know, when we see an outcome, maybe maybe it's a behavior of some sort or, you know, some kind of trauma that eventually manifests. But being able to pay attention to catch things early, having that opportunity to eat together is an opportunity to, to connect. Ah, I love it. I love it. And I think, you know, I'm back in practice here in Dallas, Texas, and, you know, I've done a lot of virtual medicine, virtual, you know, physician to physician consults, and just getting back in that one-on-one -on -one patient visit, it's been so powerful for me because I've, I've missed it. I love my groups. I, I mean, I love the community I've built. I love my physician to physician consult, but being able to be in the room with a patient where the door's shut and they can ask and tell me anything, right? And they feel like that, you know, I like the word disease, right? Like they're coming in worried about a disease. It is that dis-ease, that stress, that worry that is is all pent in. And, and when you're in that relationship, you're able, you're able to feel that. You're able to see that and perceive that a lot better than what we can do virtually for sure. And, and so, you know, I appreciate the message and the study. And as a clinician, really realizing that every patient I see has a stress-related illness, has and that creating this hormonal imbalance from stress and or, or ACEs, adverse childhood experiences or trauma or isolation leading to these symptoms and can really appreciate that more now than ever because pre-pandemic, it wasn't this extreme. Yeah. And you know what? This is also a bright shining light on what's possible because those ACEs and, you know, these ad adverse childhood experiences I come from a very, very volatile environment and, you know, living in the inner city and for a significant portion of my childhood, we lived right next door. This is during the crack epidemic. There was like a little gangway separating our apartment complex to the apartment next door where crack was being made and sold and, you know, the sirens going off constantly, gunshots, like we were living in a kind of strange version of a war and you don't realize that you carry PTSD from that and I live my life you know going out and you know wanting to find a way out and exceeding academically and going being the first person in my family to go to college for example but I carried so many of those behaviors and fears and traumas with me and I didn't realize it you know it wasn't just outside my house by the way it was in my household and experiencing a lot of violence and a lot of dysfunction and addiction and every person in my family essentially had at least one chronic disease which is not abnormal by the way the cdc's numbers just last year 60 percent of americans now have at least one chronic disease 40 percent have two or more we're not doing well and so mm -hmm. i grew up in an extreme of that and for me had we known and here's here's another really cool part and this when i came across this i was like i have to write this book now and it was a study looking at minority children who grew up in the context of a low-income environment, which is where I come from. You know, we literally got food from charities. Like there's this place called the Hosea House and we'd go there occasionally and they would give us some food, you know, government assistance and all those things. And had my mother known what I'm about to share with you guys, I know that she would have made an effort to do it. It's just, we didn't know. We didn't know. She didn't know that there was a difference in the food that she was giving us. It was just stuff to eat. We didn't know the distinction between the quality of those things. 
And what these researchers found was that when those children ate with their families four times a week, wh whatever meal it could have been, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whenever they can eat together, four, four meals a week, those children ended up eating five servings or more of fruits and vegetables at least five days a week and significantly less ultra-processed foods. And the researchers noted in particular when the TV was never or rarely on. And so a lot of times, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I could count on my hands how many times we sat down and ate together as a family. I'm not exaggerating. And the most of these fingers would be holidays of some sort. It's just something that we didn't, it wasn't a part of our culture. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we'd eat at the same time, but we kind of scatter, you know, grab something and go in front of the television, a video game, or, you know, go outside with my friends, whatever the case might be. But we rarely ever sat down and ate together as a family. That wasn't a part of our culture. But had my mother known that this could be an insulation for her children, you know, to give us some advantage, regardless of the quality of food, that's the point. And I'm a nutritionist. So I'm very, very passionate about food quality. But there's something about how we're eating, who we're eating with, that creates this really powerful insulation. And by the way, I'll share just one more study in this, in this kind of sphere that I featured in the book. And this was published in Nutrition Journal. And they found that people who eat alone in isolation frequently do in fact have a substantially lower overall diet quality and significantly less intake of vital nutrients that help to prevent chronic diseases. We know this behavior, and this does not mean that this is across the board. There are anomalies in everything. But in general, when we're not eating with other people, we're not going to be eating as well. And so the, the question then arises for me again, like, how is this working? Oxytocin is a big part of this. But also just knowing that we're scheduling, and this is my call to action for everybody today. Let's make those three meals happen if you're not doing that already, right? But we have to declare and schedule, put it on our calendars like we do other stuff. Make it a priority because when asking people, you know, in all my years of clinical work, what is the most important thing to you? And 99% of the time would be my family. And then asking, is your life a reflection of that? Are you actually living as though your family is the most important? And the vast majority of the time, there's an imbalance there. You know, we do so much to try to provide for our families and we miss out on a lot with our families. And I'm here to tell you that there is a way to integrate all of it, but it's going to take a, some intention and something as simple as putting it on the calendar. And so for my family, our minimum effective dose, and we just had family dinner last night, it was a little pivot, but it might be like family dinner Monday, Wednesday, and then brunch on Sunday, right? And so that's going to be our minimum effective dose. And yesterday, as of this recording, was a Tuesday. So it was a little pivot because we didn't get to do Monday. And, you know, also giving ourselves grace. Once we mm -hmm. have it scheduled, stuff happens. One of those times, this was just a couple of weeks ago. We live in LA now. You were from the Midwest, from Missouri. And the traffic here is real. It's, it's a real thing. It's not a myth. And so she got caught on the other side of town doing something, getting something done. You know, I if her nails or something, not, lashes or, you know, one of those things. And she ended up, of course, talking with her technician for a little bit longer than she expected, which tends to happen. And she got caught in traffic. And so she had planned and told me that she was going to cook that evening. And so I didn't have time to pivot and, and me cook necessarily um, because we had really gotten to that. Like, we don't want to eat too late. We got kids, got school in the morning. So I did use DoorDash. 
But, and of course, like I could get a higher quality meal. You know, I don't got a DoorDash, I don't know, Taco Bell. But when the food arrived, I still sat down with my sons. We sat down and ate together and connected, had some laughs and was able to catch up, you know? And so the thing is, it's just, this is never about perfection, right? It's just about progress. It's about figuring things out. And the last piece is when we know those dinners are scheduled, we have certain aspects of the human brain. One of them is instinctual elaboration and just posing ourselves a kind of a subconscious question. We're going to be seeking out answers to that thing, whether we realize it or not. And so if we know family dinner is scheduled for Wednesday, we're just th already thinking like, what are we going to eat? And it's putting some planning in place. And we tend to have like what a square meal looks like, you know, through our kind of cultural education. And so we're going to likely have a, a healthier meal or at least a meal that integrates more real foods. So those are just a couple of reasons, just kind of behind the scenes why this works, but we don't need to know any of that. Just schedule it and make it a new family mission to eat together those minimum of three times a week. Yeah, I love that. And I remember when, you know, busy single mom really working with my youngest at the time she was in elementary school and one of my daughter's friends, I ran it. We were out to eat one night. I really made an effort to eat at home as much as possible. So we were out to eat one night and we met Amira's friend and her mom. And I was like, oh, you know, do you come here often? She's like, well, we eat out every day. There's no food in our house. I'm like, what? And she's like, there's no food in our house. I would just eat out. don't want to do dishes. Don't want to worry about it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'm spending all this time in the kitchen doing all this stuff, trying to gather everyone at the same time. I'm like, is that even an option to not cook at home? I was like, is that even an option? And I, and I reflect on that because that was probably, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And now I'm like, well, I'm thinking to ask you, does a meal count if you drive through Starbucks and get a coffee and you're drinking that on the way to drop her off at school and <laughs> can that be a meal together time i don't know sean but i'm like i need to, that's <laughs> we'll we'll look at that in like the side compartment in the motorcycle all right <laughs> that can it can make the ride there you know it could it can get us there in in a way but ideally of course you want to be able to be face to face to see each other to really be present yeah and that's really the key the present is really the gift in this whole scenario. And so also I shared a lot of like science-backed strategies in improving our kitchen culture and supporting a, our kitchen culture to make all of this fun, to make it a joy to even be in the kitchen if it's not one of our joys. And also knowing ourselves as well. My wife, she has her vibe that she likes in the kitchen. She likes to have on one of her shows that I would not want to watch with her. You know, maybe it's, it's Real Housewives or something. You know, so she's watching her whatever show is maybe in the background. For me, I love to put on music. And I just did this this morning, you know, making my son breakfast and, you know, making my wife her coffee. I'm her barista as well. And so, um, but I like to put lucky on the woman, movie. Lucky woman, lucky woman. That's what I'm saying, you know, but, and I don't get tips, by the way. Well, yes, I do. Let me be honest. I get the best tips. Oh yeah. Um, I was going to say, hey, let's, <laughs> let's talk about oxytocin again. What other big O's? No. <laughs> I would gladly serve her coffee every day. So, but that's my vibe that I like to create in the kitchen. And also for me, if I'm like preparing an elaborate meal, because I know my tendencies, I'm a perfectionist. I have a perfectionist tendency. And so I want everything to be plated a certain way, cooked a certain way. I have that tendency. And so I don't want a lot of intervention or interactions, but I have to flip a switch in my mind. It's not that I can't to invite in like my youngest son and 
I had a, a really sad moment writing this book because I remember, you know, years ago, because when kids are really little, they tend to want to be in the kitchen, you know, and ask questions or just to, just to be around. And I remember all those times when he asked to help, but because I was so focused on getting it done, all full steam ahead, we got to get this done. We've, there's just all these other things. And I would say, not today, bud, next time, not today, not right now, bud. And I missed out on those opportunities, but fortunately, you know, this was maybe like five years ago, I caught myself as I started to come across some of this data. And I started to, even when I felt the tension to say no, I started to say yes. And before you knew it, we're doing things together in the kitchen. Before you knew it, he can prepare his own food and even prepare things for us now because I invited him into the process. And by the way, it doesn't matter where you are on this spectrum with your kids and their ages. There's so much opportunity to make adjustments in our microculture that can lead to better health outcomes. And I'm imploring all of us to do something because one of the most shocking aspects of all of this is that the most recent couple of generations, it is a sharp decline in these young people being able to cook a meal for themselves. So few of our younger populations actually know how to cook at all. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to end up filling their diet with mainly ultra-processed foods. Okay. And this is the first book that's sharing this, the latest data on this. This was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They tracked ultra-processed food consumption by U.S. children for 20 years, all right? And in 1999, the average child in the United States was already eating 61% of their diet as ultra-processed fake foods. All right, I'm not talking about- So give some examples of that. What are you talking about, like ultra-processed baked foods? Yeah, we need to make this distinction. Humans have been processing foods forever, all right? So cooking a food is processing that food. You know, um, taking a tomato and crushing it and cooking it and making tomato sauce and or even just baking a sweet potato, right? You're cooking it, it's changing the chemical structure in interesting ways. And cooking has been one of those things that's helped us to evolve this really remarkable prefrontal cortex that we have as a human so quickly. We're able to extract more nutrients from certain foods. So processing has been around a long time, taking an olive and crushing the oil out, that's processing, but it's minimally processed. And you can also still tell where it came from. Mm -hmm. There's still some interaction or proximity to nature, to something real. Ultra processed foods, on the other hand, is when you see a field of wheat and somehow that becomes a bowl of fruity pebbles or somehow that becomes some Funyun potato chips if it's a field of corn or how a field of corn can end up being a bag of Funyuns or, you know, a bowl of smacks, you know, with that little animated frog, you know, it's, it's, the, it's so denatured that it's really lost its essence. You can't really recognize where it came from. There's no way if somebody came from another planet or from a, even a, from a hunter-gatherer tribe and they see that bowl of fruity pebbles, there's no way for them to understand where that came from in nature because it doesn't exist in nature. It is so highly refined. And of course, the additions here with food scientists, with the preservatives and additives and food dyes, and not to mention all of the pesticides and other chemicals used in the growing process. Uh, one of the other things that's really made its rounds recently is the revelations around glyphosate. And being that I'm from St. Louis and I went to my university in St. Louis, Monsanto was there at the job fairs all the time. I wanted to work there. 
I I went to get a job as one of those places like, you know, you graduate and you want to get a job at Monsanto. And, you know, being the proprietor of glyphosate, now it's really come out with the science. And this is published by the WHO now. Glyphosate is categorized as a class 2A carcinogen. That means that it probably causes cancer. And the Environmental Working Group did a huge analysis about food on U.S. store shelves. And this is in the book as well. And they found that 80 to 90% of conventional products on U.S. store shelves are contaminated with glyphosate. It is in everything. And so this is what we're talking about when we're talking about ultra-processed foods. It is a conglomeration of synthetic chemicals and very dangerous things to the human body. This is not to say that we can't have a tryst with an occasional Dorito or, you know, if we're a big fan of cereal. But if this is making up the bulk of your diet like it was for me, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I, I shared it, we didn't eat together, you know, I can count on my hands, about 90% of my diet was ultra processed foods. And so when I share this number with you with the data now about what was published in JAMA with US kids. So in 1999, the average child in the United States, 61% ultra processed food diet. By 2018, that number was almost 70%. All right. And so I was definitely at the extreme because that's the average is now almost 70%. And it's just because this is what I'm inundated with in my environment. All I knew was ultra processed food. It was cheap. It tasted good. And I was surrounded by it in the proximity, in the, in the environment that I was in. There weren't like zoning laws or like how much stuff could be. No, no. Every fast food that you can name is essentially within walking distance of my apartment complex when I was living in Ferguson, Missouri, for example, trying to get my university education and find a way to make it out of, you know, the volatility that I, that I was existing in. And I'm just surrounded by things that are contributing to my poor health. And so this is really a sobering thing to share with everybody. And I'm honored that I get to publish the first book that's sharing this information. But the more so, this is a call to action. This is like a wake-up call, like, wait a minute, something is going terribly wrong here with how we're feeding ourselves and our children. And not to villainize any of this stuff, because there's even a context. This is what's different about me. There's a context where a honey bun can save your life, all right? <laughs> If, if you're stranded in the desert or there's a zombie apocalypse of some sort, you know, if that's a thing that can happen, uh, life imitating art, art imitating life, and you come across a honey bun, that can keep you going. That can keep you going for a few more days. Well, but, there's a positive attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but is it something that we should be including if we really want to thrive and feel our best? Probably not. And so it's not to demonize those things. It's to say, hey, this is the current situation. These are some of the outcomes from this. What can we do to feel better? What can we do to upgrade what we're doing? And being that, you know, you said this earlier as well, I'm a big foodie, my family, we love food. We're not in the camp. And this, some of my colleagues as well are just, you know, in that camp of eat to live, don't live to eat. That's just silly. That's silly, <laughs> all right? Humans evolve. We have taste receptors, really elaborate taste receptors that can sense all these various flavors and we're driven to eat tasty things. That's why we eat. That's why any animal in nature, have you ever thought about why do they eat what they eat? Why do they eat what they eat? Do they get an instruction manual? Do they get a nutrition class? No, their flavor receptors drive them to eat certain things because they're tasty to them. And so, yes, food scientists have manipulated our desires to eat tasty things. Right. But right. real food has so many wonderful 
flavors and textures and experiences. And so for me, we, my family likes Sunday brunch. We love doing that together. And a pancake or two has been on the menu over the years. And I was just thinking about, you know, when I was growing up, one of my favorite things to do was to, if I got up in time, go to McDonald's and get the hotcakes and sausage. So I was like, people love pancakes in our culture. What can we do to provide a truly nutrient-dense but delicious pancake? And I utilized about 40 different foods in this book that, and by the way, there's a bunch of other ingredients, but I found 40 specific foods in the research that have the most scientific evidence of helping us to burn fat and improve our metabolic health improving our cognition, improving our sleep quality. And one of those foods was sweet potatoes. I couldn't ignore it. They're, the anthocyanins found in sweet potatoes have even been found to improve memory, for example. It's crazy stuff. And so I was like, let's use this food in a creative way, right? Baking a sweet potato, that's cool, all right? So we made these delicious protein sweet potato pancakes. And so using sweet potato as a base is a delicious obviously delicious flavor, but also the texture. You know, this is much more pancakey than a lot of like fancy combinations of different flowers trying to find what works. And also a lot of those flowers are going to be higher glycemic. Because of the nature of the sweet potato, it tends to not have that big glycemic load that a lot of, a lot of other foods have. And we're delivering the information and all those micronutrients that's found in that sweet potato in this delicious meal. And so that, we've got an upgraded breakfast sandwich. Uh, one of my favorite things right now is probably the salmon burger. You're making the boss burger, which is amazing. I am. And uh, last thing, you know, we're big, well, especially my wife and my youngest son. Um, after dinner, they have their eyes like for some sweet. They're looking for some sweet, not something, some, some sweet. Some and sweet. So, I highlighted the superfood chocolate park. I'm like, ah, we're going to make this. <laughs> That part, exactly, exactly. We've got some great Snicker bites, some frozen yogurt, cherry pops as well. And kids love to make this stuff too, and they, to help out and make them. And by the way, last little bit, those cherries, I use that as, as an ingredient in those frozen yogurt pops for a specific reason. This is one of the few foods that is a dense source of naturally occurring melatonin. All right. Not Heart to cherries. mention the, the anthocyanins and other uh, antioxidants found in cherries too, but it's building up that bank account of good sleep nutrients. It doesn't mean if you eat some cherries, you're just going to fall asleep, by the way. It's not that. It's just giving your body some building blocks to be able to make sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. And so eating with a purpose, that's really the goal of the book as well, plus deliciousness. Oh, yeah. You got to make it tasty. And it's also a very, very beautiful book. It's a beautiful book to share with the pictures and everything. It's amazing. And I think bringing attention to food is information and, you know, to be able to enjoy it, enjoy the time at the dinner table. And most importantly, the family that gathers around. And this morning I text everyone, we're going to have, you know, Sunday dinner, 6 p.m. And uh, the girls are like, oh, what should I bring? And I just love it when we can get together, we finish prep together and sit down and enjoy it, right? And enjoy it. And maybe with a glass of wine. And you said you weren't going to demonize wine. So let's talk about that a little bit. But also, you know, recognizing that it doesn't, you're not saying, okay, let's eat every day, every meal at home, gather together as a family that the research showed that just three times a week. So if you're not doing that, that's a great incentive to do that. And also the science 
incur, you know, sharing the science with your family members is very encouraging to them and their overall health. So I love, I love putting it all together in this way. Yeah, me too. And of course, like your work really connects so well with this and, and how we're putting all this together, because it really is about community. It's about connection. It's about optimizing your hormones with subtle things where you don't have to turn your life upside down because food isn't just food. As I mentioned, it's information, but also how we interact with each other. That's information as well. It's changing our chemistry just based on being around certain people. You know, I'm a huge fan of the work coming out of HeartMath Institute. Mm -hmm. And years ago, I got to see some of their scans looking at the electromagnetic field of the human heart. And there is a field that's emitted from our bodies. Literally, like, how did our ancestors, why is the heart so special? You know, why is that like a part of our culture that we talk about it, but we really don't get it? The human heart, first of all, it's just teeming with neurotransmitters, by the way. A lot of scientists refer to it as the heart brain because there's so much neurotransmitter activity or brain-like activity and connectivity happening in the heart, not to mention this electromagnetic field. When we see movies or if you've ever been in the hospital and you, you know, that little, that boop, 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 and looking at the heart monitor, that's picking up the electrical release or the electrical energy emitting from the human heart. Like that's powerful. We're emitting this energy. But the researchers at HeartMath Institute found that this field emanating from the human heart can be up to eight feet from our bodies. They called it a tube torus. And that field is inherently interacting with other people when you're sharing the same space. And this speaks to some research out of Yale. And they found that people just interacting with each other that hadn't met before and just maybe talking for like 10 minutes, developing even a small amount of rapport and monitoring their brain activity, their brain waves started to sync up and mirror each other. All right. Yes. We are built, we are designed to connect. We inherently sync up with other people when we're around them. So of course, we want to be a little mindful of who you're hanging out with. Yes. And understanding your influence. And so that's one, one of the things I've been a big proponent for with myself and my kids is like, Bring it to it. Let's not go into an environment expecting to pick something up or to get something. Bring the energy to the environment. Walk in the room and be an expression of love, of compassion, of sharing, of service. And you start to set the energy in the room and the template in the room. You can't help but influence other people and be influenced, by the way. And so how do we use this to the max? Again, getting together with friends, family is family and friends count too, by the way. And in the spirit, a spirit is created when we interact with each other, you know? And also, last thing, something a little bit more tangible is what we know now about the microbiome. And it's not just a gut microbiome. We have a microbiome of our skin, our lungs, the list goes on and on. But we are literally sharing microbial data when we hang out with other people. It's like, Kind of this immune system file sharing back if anybody remembers when we were had the music file sharing you know it's being able to get more files more information more access to to tunes and different music different frequencies when we're interacting with other people but you know of course we tend to look at this just through the lot through the light of uh something problematic you know something viral in a negative sense but health can be viral as well Mm -hmm. Good things can be spread as well. 
And so this is something that we require. It's training for our immune system. It's basically upgrading our data uh, capacity as well, being around other people. We share a microbiome much more similar to the people in our household than our parents, than right. our siblings. The list goes on and on, unless we're living with our parents and our siblings. And so again, there's so much that we're not seeing because we only see a certain way as humans that we get by being around people that we love. I love that too. And I wanted to, when you were talking about ultra processed foods and just the medical consequences of that, right? The, the obesogens, it is, it's not about calories in, calories out. It's not about counting calories. I mean, these are obesogens and that affect your body. Even when you start shifting to eating whole foods, it can take some time. I always talk about detoxification, clearing our system, using our food, choosing our food carefully, but it makes a huge difference. But also, you know, all the diseases of aging, like diabetes and arthritis and inflammatory diseases that these ultra processed foods can contribute to that. But also like even what we're cooking in, like the old Teflon pans, like we want to toss those out. I'm using glass bowls, not plastic, nesting glass bowls, which I love. And because I only like to do, I don't know if you can see my uh, dish in the back here, this like loge pan, it's very well worn. It's this one big pan, but it is like, it's my pan, it's my frying pan, it's my like cooking in one dish, making life easy, but also non-toxic ingredients. And so non-toxic cookware, and that makes a difference too. And hitting on all those things is, is part of eating smarter as well. Yes, you just, thank you so much, you're the best. You know, we're hitting on all these points and just things that we might overlook. We don't have to turn our world upside down to swap out a pan or a pot or two, or make some changes in what we're storing our food in. You know, I grew up, you know, all of us did really in the age of plastic and Gladware and all this stuff. And now we know, or actually your study just came out a couple months ago and they found that quote, microwave safe plastics. And we'll com come back to what that means. Putting food in those and putting in the microwave, they found that within, you know, three minutes of heating up a dish, just a three centimeter space of the plastic is releasing billions of nanoplastics into the food and millions of microplastics are ending up in the food. That's for just from three centimeters. And there's many centimeters, of course, in a lot of the containers that we're putting our food in. And so it is integrating in our food. We do see BPA showing up in our system and even in babies, you know, we're seeing a lot more BPA metabolites with plastic bottles. And it's one of those, we just didn't know. We just okay. didn't know. And that's okay. Now we can start to make some changes and a lot of cool stuff is being done. But most importantly, by, by the way, we still have some plastic containers. Again, this is not about perfection. Just over time, we've, you know, I might pop on Amazon and buy some stainless steel food containers, right? Or buy a different type of pan than this Teflon. And by the way, you mentioned with Teflon, one of the compounds, and it was just recently banned. It was recently taken out of Teflon, but it's still showing up in the majority of people's blood that's been tested years later. All right. So about 10 years later. And one of them is perfluorooctanoic acid or PFOAs. And I cite this study Forever chemicals. Well. Forever chemicals. They're not going anywhere. And the Journal of the National Cancer Institute found that this, that PFOAs cause 
renal cancer. They cause kidney cancer. It isn't maybe, it isn't probable. It is a notable kidney cancer carcinogen. It is a cancer-causing agent. Specifically, it tends to target our kidneys, which our kidneys work many ways like a filtration system in our bodies. And so these forever chemicals are holding up shop. And so that chemical was banned, all right? But it's still in our bodies because it's a forever chemical. And now, again, just being aware of that, that that was in Teflon, what else is in Teflon that we're going to find out about? And also giving ourselves grace, nonstick pans are awesome. Change the game. We can find other ways. We can find other creative ways. There are really nice ceramics. Um, obviously, stainless steel has been used for a long time. It might not be the best for nonstick cooking purposes, but being able to use stainless steel whenever we can, and also just understanding how to cook with a certain piece of cookware um, with stainless steel, for example, and we can be able to finesse some nonstick qualities in a good, you know, seasoned cast iron skillet and the list goes on and on. Um, there are so many other great options. And what we're doing is just laying it out. Here's the science. Here's some cool upgrades. Don't try to do everything at once. Let's just swap this one thing out here, swap this thing out there. And you're going to start to see the health benefits, not just from the higher quality food, not just from cooking, changing our kitchen culture a little bit, but most importantly, doing this together with our friends and family. Bringing the family around the table, friends and family. Yeah, I love it. Sean, I, you know, I, I love talking to you. I can talk to you all day. Tell our audience where they can find out more information about you, where they can get the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook and start digging into it. And just, uh, the way also you present information, as everyone can tell listening to you now, is just so easy, so easily digestible to use a foodie word. But <laughs> thank you. Love it. Awesome. Well, people can pick up the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook everywhere their books are sold. So your local Barnes and Noble, uh, of course, Barnes and Noble online, Amazon, and uh, your local bookstores. I'm very honored, you know, again, coming from where I come from to have a book that is nationally found in bookstores is so remarkable. And this is my third major book. Uh, the last two, you know, essentially broke some records. And so, but now it was all leading up to this. This is the book that I really feel like I was I was qualified and born to write. Sometimes life doesn't call the qualified, life qualifies the called. Mm. And so I feel like just even what I've intentionally done to create a healthier culture with my family and not coming from one and being able to share this with countless families over the years and see those outcomes, this is something really special. And we need this right now because I feel like we're really close to a tipping point to making good health normalized because right now it's not. And if anything, to be able to pass this down, because culture at its core, this is the shared values, beliefs, and attitudes and behaviors that we pass down from one generation to the next. And so we have the opportunity to create new cultures that we're passing on to our children and changing the trajectory of future generations. So you can pick it up anywhere that books are sold, and you can go to eatsmartercookbook.com, eatsmartercookbook.com. We got some great bonuses over there as well. We've got a family health and fitness summit that people can get access to virtually from anywhere in the world as well. And some other cool bonuses are found there too. And by the way, where they're listening to this amazing podcast, they can find my show. It's called The Model Health Show, The Model Health Show on all podcast platforms. And yeah, that's that's where you can find me. And by the way, yeah. you are one of my favorite people in this space. You are such a light and so giving 
you know, people don't know this, but like even for, you know, uh, somebody that works on my team, you sent out a care package to help them for something they were dealing with, you know, as they're kind of, you know, in perimenopause, that phase. And I, I didn't even have to, I didn't even ask, you know, I just mentioned this to you and you were like, I got you. And you go above and beyond. And so that's what I want people to know about you who don't know you personally, that you are the real deal. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Well, my family and team is the same way and you're the same way. You've always made me feel so at home and welcome. So thank you so much, Sean. And for everyone, you guys pick up the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. You will love it. I'm making the boss burgers. We'll use lettuce instead of buns. Added onions, Sean, to that. But <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love, I love cooking. I love food. So you guys pick this up. And when you do, cook up a recipe. Tag Sean in it. It makes so much difference to spread the book, you know, spread the word about books. Take a picture, tag Sean, tag me, and we will share your cooking. And um, I love, I'd love to hear about it. Most importantly, like don't stress, bringing the family back around the table any way that you can is going to improve your health, your longevity, and set a, you know, set a legacy in motion for a healthier next generation. So I thank you guys for being here at the Girlfriend Doctor Show. Seriously, Sean's podcast, The Model Health Show, is my favorite podcast. I listen to a few. I don't have so much time to listen to some, but Sean is one that I will catch. And so Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, check that out and let me know how you like it. I look forward to hearing from you. And thank you guys for being in the Girlfriend Doctor community. Till next time.